This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm back here again with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. I was going to say, Chris, I don't know. It hasn't been as always lately, but it is really good to be back in the virtual booth with you today. Welcome back. Ships passing in the podcast night somewhere. We've missed each <laughs> other the past few episodes, but glad to get things back together. No, absolutely. And this is a good one to do it. I'm, I'm really excited about today's episode. We're actually returning to a topic or for a big chunk of our conversation today, we're returning to a topic we've addressed before, and that is the SEC's thoughts or proposed rulemaking relating to investment advisory firms' use of predictive data analytics. I don't want to say too much about it up top, but it's a good topic. We continue to hear a lot about that topic in the news or read it in the print media and something that we thought it would just be a good idea to come back, get a different perspective from a a really good guest who knows his stuff on this topic. So that's what we're going to do today. Chris, I don't know. I think I've teased it enough. Do you want to tell us a little bit about today's guest? I'd love to. We're glad to be joined by Brett Redfern, who is the founder and CEO of Panorama Financial Markets Advisory. We're going to abbreviate that today as PFMA, because you know, Kurt, I usually get stumbled on those big financial Add it to the acronym bingo card. (laughs) Prior to PFMA, (laughs) Brett headed capital markets for Coinbase, where he focused on building the emergent ecosystem for digital asset securities and overseeing the Coinbase exchange. Between October 2017 and December 2020, Brett led the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets, where he oversaw several groundbreaking rulemakings and market initiatives. Notably, Brett played a leading and essential role in coordinating the public and private sector efforts to maintaining fair, orderly, and efficient markets in and during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in the spring of 2020. Brett's efforts also included rulemaking to modernize the national market system and enhance market transparency. Of course, during Brett's tenure, the commission adopted regulation best interest, Kurt, which you ding, call, ding, 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 and ding. maybe some others call Reg BI, <laughs> that rulemaking package, including form CRS. Uh, Brett joined the SEC after a 14-year career at JP Morgan, where he was, most recently, global head of market structure for the corporate and investment bank across asset classes. Brett, glad to have you on the show. Welcome to Insecurities. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I, I guess I'm lucky that I get both of you on the same podcast. So that's, that's great. Right. I won't say our other guests had a little bit less of a, of a co-host <laughs> ability here, but we're glad to, to circle it back with you, Brett. So, Brett, you led the Division of Trading and Markets during Commissioner Clayton's tenure. We'd love to hear you discuss some of the differences you've observed from that rulemaking perspective between those days in the Clayton regime and where we see uh, Gary Gensler's administration today. Yeah. So first, you know, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you guys have, have done some great work and I love the way you get information out to the marketplace. So so kudos to that. Secondly, Kurt, or I won't say Wolfie, but Kurt, <laughs> the, the it's not just investment advisors, it's broker dealers as well. So, you know, I just want to make that, I know you mentioned that earlier. So this is very relevant to investment advisors and broker dealers. And in that respect, it is a quite an expansive rule. That being said, you know, with respect to prior commissions, look, I haven't 
worked in prior commissions, but I've been following the work of the SEC for a long time. And I do feel like there is a pretty noteworthy shift that we're seeing right now. One of the first things that I think is quite important is on the issue of industry vetting. And on challenging topics, especially novel issues, it's really important to go out and to solicit views and understand industry and investor um, opinions before putting out proposals. Like if you think about it, Reg NMS, for example, was debated for years before the SEC put out its proposal. I was involved in a lot of these debates back then on the order protection rule. And I think two, three, four years ahead of that, we were having you know a lot of discussions around order protection and automated quotes and so on. So that was quite noteworthy. Before I got to the commission, the SEC had an Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee, or MSAC. And MSAC brought together a cross-section of folks from the industry, all different views, and really debated issues. They hammered it out, and then they came up with recommendations that were due to that kind of industry vetting. When I came to the commission, we had some big roles we were interested in doing, and we held roundtables on certain issues. We had round, we had one roundtable that was two days long because of the number of issues that we wanted to vet. And the you know a lot of the marketplace showed up. We had to have a big auditorium. And according, accordingly, we also solicited public comment. So a lot of debate, a lot of public comment, a lot of issues put out on the table and debated before we, we actually proposed rules. You know, back in the day, and this was really more in the late 90s and the early 2000s, there were concept releases that would be put out. So if something was new, if it was a new technology or just an issue that the commission didn't have a, a fulsome grasp of, they would put out a concept release and they would say, these are the issues. This is our understanding. Here's a bunch of questions opine, right? Talk and solicit comments. And that would be very helpful. And I don't, I just don't see this happening with this commission, right? We're, we're seeing a very aggressive rulemaking agenda. We're seeing rules that are being proposed that I think have not had a lot of meaningful public debate. I think on the PDA rule, it probably stands out possibly as a novel issue that just hasn't had that kind of debate. And it almost feels like in some cases, there almost is a sort of a request for comment dynamic in the role proposals. Like, well, this is what we think. Here's a bunch of questions. Please tell us what it is. But the problem is that it's happening in the context of a, a, a rule proposal. And that's creating a fair bit of agita as people sort of think, you know, where could this possibly land when there's still a lot of information being gathered? I think the second key difference is I feel like there's a bit of a negotiation style of rulemaking that we're seeing out of this commission. And what I mean by that is it seems like some of the rules are being proposed in a manner that is intentionally overambitious with the understanding that the rules will inevitably get dialed back after the comment period. And, you know, that's different. I, I, I think every rule that I remember being involved in, and I remember them all, we put our best foot <laughs> forward, right? We, if that rule was adopted, how we proposed it, we would have been okay with that. That was kind mm -hmm. of what we were shooting. We put out there what we were shooting for. If we thought the right number was five, we didn't propose 10 with the idea that we would get negotiated back to five. We proposed five and then we debated it and maybe it was four and maybe it was six. So I feel like due to these differences, some of these proposals feel a little bit more like you know, almost like concept rule, concept releases that are baked inside of proposals and also kind of a bit of an over-proposal thing where they understand it's going to be negotiated back and maybe that's how we land at the right spot. But again, I think those dynamics are different and I think that they're probably creating a little more agita in the process than we might otherwise have expected. 
Yeah, I, I want to zoom in a little bit on that first piece I think you were talking about, which is a little more process oriented than the substance of the release. And what I hear you saying is it's almost like they are skipping some steps maybe in terms of soliciting public comment or engaging with industry, however we would think about it. And of course, we've heard a lot about, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the shorter comment periods. I think we're seeing less of that now, but all of this feels a little bit to me, like they're rushing, you know, they're trying to get through as many rules as possible. And, you know, the commission recently released its new rulemaking agenda for the spring, and it is as busy as the last couple have been. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, one, do you feel like they're rushing? Maybe let's set aside climate risk disclosures. That doesn't seem to be a rush anymore. But with respect to a lot of things, do you think they're rushing? And, you know, what? why might that be? What's the hurry? I do feel like it's rushed. And I feel like it's rushed because the, you know, because of this really ambitious agenda. And when you get to the commission, one thing you realize is that you actually, you know, if you only have one term, you, it's not a lot of time, right? If you think about the rulemaking process from the beginning, the middle to the end, so sort of the pre-proposal research and analysis and deliberation phase to the proposal process where you have to get that through the whole process at the commission between DIRA and the data analysis and OGC, general counsel's office and the legal issues and the policy issues and then vetting it with the commissioners and getting the vote. And then it finally gets proposed. And then you have a big comment period and you have to go through all the comments and review them in detail and then refine the proposal and then go back and do the whole thing again in terms of writing the approval. It's a long process. It, it really is. It can take a year, right? And the more deliberation you do and the more data analysis you do and the more legal analysis you do in your work, the longer it takes. And if you want to do, I think it's still 63 rules on the commission's docket right now, you know, where 21 plus have been proposed and finalized, 31 have been proposed, not finalized. I think 11 more are coming. At least that's what it was the last time I, I, I took a look well, last month. You know, that's a lot. And when you think about what the, the bandwidth is and the calendar that can happen, if you want to get a lot done, then you can either get... I think a smaller number done in a deliberative, thoughtful, and you know, a, a really well thought out way, or you can kind of rush and cut some corners yeah. and, you know, and, and get more done so you can sort of put it through the pipeline. And I feel like we're sort of seeing that. And I think that's reflected in some of the rules or some areas when you look at the rules or you look at the EA and you identify things that just don't seem to be there. It feels to me very rushed. It feels to me like, you know, there's a bit of a trade-off being made here for getting more done, getting more pushed through the machinery, as opposed to having a little bit more time for deliberation or maybe doing a little more data analysis and a little more vetting to, to get to the right place. As you know, also, the common periods generally have been, I think it's somewhere around 47 days on average, which is a lot fewer than they have been in the past. And so the common periods are being truncated. And when you look at the, you know, I have friends in the industry and there, there's times when it's like... I'm reviewing right now eight different proposals that are out there, all of which might interact in some way, each of which is proposed as an independent standalone rule that doesn't necessarily include the dynamics that could exist if other rules were also approved. And, you know, that's challenging. That feels rushed. And again, it's, it's very difficult to be able to even comment as thoroughly as people would like to comment when there's so much out there and when they need a lot of work and when they all inter interrelate 
to each other in some way. Yeah, Brett, these are complex ideas. And, and obviously, right, you voiced your opinion about speed being not the enemy here, but maybe an element of the current rulemaking regime that's uh, being focused on much more so than other elements. And as a practitioner, right, in the accounting space, I'm always interested in how the commission will consider its engagement with industry, right, with those it impacts. I know today we'll talk about IAs and BDs, but, you know, with all of these rules, there's a lot of folks who's got skin in the game as it relates to the outcome there. So how do you see, you know, when you were with the commission's approach to interacting with industry, maybe different than, uh, you know, the way things are moving, whether through speed or, or focus today? So, so look, I, I think that the industry voice is incredibly important because probably more than a lot of other folks who are out there, they know how this is going to affect their business. They know how this is going to affect how markets work and how it's going to affect investors. And so their voices is very important. And, you know, there have been things that have been said, including by this chairman, that suggest that the industry is just sort of conflicted and they're not going to like it. And so, you know, if they don't like it. That's OK, because, you know, they maybe they shouldn't like it. And certainly there are places where the industry doesn't have to like it. But but in terms of understanding how it's going to affect their business and 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 in, in both positive and negative ways. That's really important. It's really important. That's why you know we did these roundtables. Why you've seen other requests for comment or, or a great deal of industry engagement in the past. So I think that there have been missed opportunities. I also think that in some respects, some of the industry engagement has been a bit uneven. That, for example, on some of the equity market structure proposals, there's a view that there was a limited subset of the industry that was consulted with going in. And then everybody else kind of after the proposal came out, had the opportunity then to comment on the proposal, but less so in the period leading up to the proposal. So I think it's been a missed opportunity. I think there should have been roundtables or a committee. You know, like we, we also have, by the way, had a fixed income market structure advisory committee. Same thing on fixed income issues, a different group of people around the table coming up with recommendations. Why those things haven't been happening, I don't know, but I think our policies would have benefited from more of that. I mean, there does seem to be, as you put it, a, a perceived need at the commission to get more done, to get more through the machinery, you know, quicker with less engagement, whatever the case is. But, you know, e even so, even as they're pushing a lot of things through, in some cases, it seems like the commission is taking steps to change policy, even before, in some cases, before there has been a proposal, but in other cases, before a final rule has been adopted and implemented. I mean, I wonder if you've observed this trend or if you have thoughts on maybe how or why the commission is sometimes getting ahead of the rulemaking process altogether. Right. So, you know, when I think about this, you know, I can tell you this, we have approved rules that when I was there that were approved unanimously. So it was, we mm. worked to get bipartisan support of agreement and every rule after it's been approved, there's an implementation process. And that implementation process can be tedious. It requires staff resources. It requires, you know, requires part of the bandwidth of the commission. And even if it is not the agenda of the current commission, this is something that's been approved. And this is something that needs to be implemented and to be followed through with. And quite frankly, if you don't do that, I think that it really raises some fundamental issues about the whole sort of 
policy process and how what people should expect when they see you know debated rules that are approved unanimously like what is going to happen or will they merely be undone and one of the things that we've seen on some of the market data rule related or, or policies that i put in place was the first thing that happened is those who didn't like it took them to court so okay so that's obviously going to delay things and i think you're seeing with this commission there's a lot of things that are being brought to court and that's going to result in a certain degree of delay but if you win the case and it comes out victorious then the next step should be implementation and on two of the things that we did one of which was the nms governance order okay so this is national market system plans we had an order related to governance it went into court there was a few provisions in there. The SEC was victorious on two out of three of those. This was decided in July of 2022. Between Now, you would think, okay, the case is decided. Let's get on with it and let's move forward. Nothing was done on that at all for over a year. Something was finally wow. done in September. But in that intervening period, significant aspects of this policy landscape have changed. The other thing was a rule that we approved on market data infrastructure. This, so this was a rule that would say, you know, investors should have more information, that the speed of the information should be more fair between different market participants, more data content. It was I won't get into the nuances of that rule, but it was a pretty significant rule in terms of leveling the competitive playing field in the marketplace mm -hmm. and bringing competition into the data market. So that was decided in May of 2022. Nothing has happened meaningfully to move the ball forward on that particular policy. And so, and that was one, when I went back to the roundtables that I talked about earlier, like two days of roundtables, tons of vetting before we did it, worked through the whole process of proposal and unanimous vote. And here we are now at the end of 2023 and a rule that was passed in 2020 has not moved at all. And importantly, while the litigation process was going on, the current commission actually went in and started pushing other policies that changed the nature of that rulemaking, right? So if we said, you know, depth of book should be available to all investors at five levels, well, if you propose something that reduces the quoting increment by a tenth or a half or whatever it turns out to be, but they had proposed a tenth and it's only five increments, you've actually reduced the amount of information that investors will get which completely is contrary yeah. to what was approved in that rule. That happened, that proposal happened while this was in litigation. And you know, I, I don't wanna bore you with uh, you know, all of the different scenarios here, but I think it's important to note that you know, now you're in a, we're in a world where it's very possible that Gensler will come up with some very significant proposals and they could get voted through. And if they get voted through, I think all of you have heard that there's a lot of market participants that have already threatened to sue and to take yeah. them to court. And so let's assume that they go into litigation and we end up with another administration. What is the next chairman going to do? We're going to look at what this new kind of process is and they're going to say, well, while it's in litigation, I can just write mm -hmm. around it, right? I'm going to write another rule around it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to do something different. And that really concerns me because the industry is so like, well, I mean, imagine during decimalization, we're going to go to, we're going to pennies away from fractions. Imagine if in between the period that that was approved and that was implemented, another chairman came in and said, yeah, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. The industry just debated that for several years, but I don't like it. And so I'm going to change it back before it goes into effect. And I, I really think that this is a, a meaningful change. And I, it worries me that 
you know, that first of all, I, I would like to see the, the work that I put in eventually see the light of day. And, and hopefully, you know, I don't know, maybe that will happen under this under this commission. But I also just worry at a, at a higher level in terms of the policy process, what it really means if things are getting undone or significantly modified before they have a chance to see the light of day. Well, Brad, I just want to ask a, a quick question as an observer here, right? You and Kurt are much more in the weeds on rulemaking with the SEC than I am. Are there instances in which speed or decisiveness was beneficial in the market, you know, with hindsight to say, hey, if we would have taken three or four years to implement this rule, you know, there might have been some confusion in the market or some harm done? Well, you know, look, you have to make rational decisions in the implementation process. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time, so I can go back and, and remind you all of what happened with Reagan MS. So Reagan MS was proposed, like, and this was like probably before this among the biggest changes we've seen yeah. to our markets in a long time. So yeah. really important. And it came, you know, they proposed a rule, but people didn't expect that they were going to propose it a certain way. And so there was a lot of negative feedback and the commission actually had to come out and repropose the rule based upon the changes that were made. So the first thing I would say is the, some of these rules that are proposed, my view is they're far enough away from where they could reasonably land that they should be reproposed. But reproposing rules kind of means you might not get it done. And so if your main goal is just getting stuff done, then people are going to be remiss to repropose them. By the way, that raises other litigation risks in terms of, you know, is there logical outgrowth from what the original proposal and so on and so forth. But then Reagan MS had an implementation period. And what happened? It was delayed. It was extended. People looked at it and they said, you know what, this is going to take a little more time than we need. And that is very reasonable. So I guess my, my point before wasn't so much that there aren't times at which you need to potentially delay things. It's just that there's a difference between implementing something thoughtfully and more slowly to get it right versus ignoring it, changing it, or not implementing it all. Yeah, I think that's a perfect segue into what we want to talk about or at least focus on today, which is the PDA rule. I mentioned up top that we we're going to kind of dive into that. And I think that we're going to kindly kind of pick up on some of these threads in the context of that rule. Uh, of course, our, our regular listeners will recall that we talked about the PDA rulemaking proposal with Professor James Tierney back on episode 101. People often know it as the Netflix problem episode. Uh, but as I mentioned, it continues to be a hot topic and that's why we're here. So just quick background for, for anyone who didn't listen to that episode. Uh, back in July, the SEC proposed a new rule that would require broker-dealers and investment advisors to take steps to address potential conflicts of interest associated with their use of predictive data analytics, again, that's the PDA part, to ensure that those firms are placing their investors' interests ahead of the firm's interests. In short, the proposed rule generally would require firms to evaluate and determine whether their use of PDA creates conflicts of interest that result in the firm's interests being placed ahead of investors' interests. And if they find that is happening, firms would be required to eliminate or neutralize the effect of any such conflicts. I think Chair Gensler in the rulemaking announcement or press release summed up at least his concerns about the use of PDA. He said, quote, today's predictive data analytics models provide an increasing ability to make predictions about each of us as individuals. This raises possibilities that conflicts may arise to the extent that advisors or brokers are optimizing to place their interests ahead of their investors' interests, end quote. 
The proposed rulemaking was not very popular with the industry, as you might imagine, and it has received withering criticism from a number of industry organizations. For example, I'll just a couple snippets from one of them. In a comment letter that was co-signed by, it's a long list, Chris, buckle in, uh, the American Council of Life Insurers, the American Investment Council, the AIMA, the American Securities Association, the Financial Services Institute, the Financial Technology Association, FinSECA, the Investment Company Institute, the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, the Insured Retirement Institute, the LSTA, the Managed Funds Association, the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, the National Association of Investment Companies, the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness. They say that the rule is, quote, unnecessary, inadequately reasoned, and fatally flawed, end quote. And among other reasons, those organizations say that the rule is outright hostile to the use of technology, in some cases, operationally unfeasible and would likely make firms opt out of deploying technological innovations to avoid the prohibitive costs of compliance. And it's sort of on that last piece, Brett, that I want to focus on first with respect to the PDA rule. I mean, at a high level, when we see new technologies or innovations entering the marketplace, what do you think is the role of the regulator, the SEC specifically, to think about or address that kind of new technology? So- Wow. So that was a great preview to this. And I think that there probably would have been more associations if they had more paper left to, to, because I think I would agree that I'm hearing from all corners of the industry and the marketplace that there's a really problematic rule. And, and it's again, as I mentioned earlier, a bit of an overreach and something that's created probably more agita than it should have taken had there been a little more, you know, preparatory work and industry dialogue going on beforehand. But look, the SEC's mission is straightforward. It's to protect investors, to, to facilitate fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and to facilitate capital formation. Its job is not to regulate new technologies unless and until any of those technologies can be shown to have a clearly negative effect on any of these objectives. Now, you know, in my career, it's been very much focused on what, what, what I would just call market structure, right? And in market structure, new technologies come in. They enable new trading practices or new innovations. At some point in time, you realize that there might be new issues that are raised from a regulatory perspective. And when those regula regulatory changes or regulatory issues become clear, then I think the regulator has to look at that and say, okay, how do we deal with that, right? So an example might be, you know, when trading went from you know executions taking place in seconds to executions taking place in milliseconds or microseconds, right? And we ended up with high frequency trading, and we ended up with other issues and data disparities and things like that ultimately had to be addressed after problems were clearly identified, issues were were raised, and there was something to target. But the SEC's job is not to regulate the technologies itself. Technologies are enabling, technologies have done amazing things for the efficiencies of our markets, and they will continue yeah. to do so. We shouldn't do anything that kind of precludes, prohibits, or significantly impedes any given technology in a way that undermines all of the other benefits that can come from that particular technology. SEC should generally be technology neutral if they need to regulate around it, around those specific issues. I think that's reasonable, right? And I think this is a, a case where we've kind of missed that. We've missed that because, you know, so first of all, you know, my view is that we have regulation best interest where 
broker dealers have to you know both disclose potential conflicts they have but make sure that in the process they do not put their interests before the interests of their investors advisors have a fiduciary role conflicts are supposed to be di- disclosed you know and there are ways in uh, like i believe so i believe that there are ways in which these existing roles could have easily been looked at and said okay well you know if you're putting in a new technology and that technology is going to put your interest before investors well you have to deal with that in the course of a recommendation but in this particular case you know and i think we'll get into more of these details if you look at how far reaching this is and how it doesn't just talk about advice or recommendations but it gets into any engagement or any communication or an array of technological uses that goes super far, it really goes too far. It really starts to regulate the technology itself in a way which I think, as was stated in the comments you made earlier, kind of undermines the use of that technology in a way that I think ultimately would be net negative to investors. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. You know, I th- and as you mentioned that, it reminds me of something that you said to me when we chatted a few weeks ago to, to talk about this episode. And you said something like with respect to the use of predictive data analytics, that the verdict is out too early. And what I took you to mean by that is the commission has sort of formed a view that there are risks associated with PDA, right? And, they, and they've put a rulemaking proposal on the table uh, without perhaps doing some of the things you suggested up top that the commission should do to think about a rulemaking. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about concept releases as something that the commission used to use more frequently. We don't see much of that these days. Is this a case where maybe that would have been helpful? And if so, what would that even look like? So sure. And look, look you know, like to me, as far as all of the roles that I've seen come out of this commission, I think this is the, probably the most premature. And, and, you know, and this is touching on AI, right? And AI is, is new. And I'm still learning about AI. I'm playing around with chat GPT and BARD and other things. But when people look at the risks associated with these technologies, we're all just learning. Like, we don't know it yet. We don't understand it yet. It's early days. And certainly we need to watch and learn. We need to look at what the ultimate effect is. But it's just not it's just not ripe. And certainly, if you're going to do something, it should be something that's pretty tart. Like in my view, again, Reg BI or the fiduciary duty, there's things in which could be applied that would capture the most glaring potential risks, but without this sort of broad swath rulemaking that affects the general use of technology in our financial markets. So yeah, so concept releases, look, it could be, it could have been a concept release. It could have been you know, like they could have established a committee to have forums on the, the extent to which AI or predictive data analytics are affecting investors. And what are the good things and what are the bad things and how do we do this? That would have really probably been an interesting symposium to be had. The concept releases that you mentioned, like these were quite prevalent, more so in like the late 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, there's a whole website of different concept releases and they came out on like actively managed ETFs, right? Before we had actively managed ETFs, there was a concept release on that. There was a concept release on decimal trading. There was a concept release on the regulation of exchanges. So there's a whole bunch of areas where when the commission says, look, there's issues that are before us, but we don't really understand them completely. So let's put something out there. We'll explain the issues. We'll ask a lot of questions. We'll gather input, and then we can thoughtfully proceed with respect to how to regulate. And to me, I think something like that or any of these other forms of industry engagement were well warranted here and probably would have avoided, you know, what is a 
you know, a, a, a significant bashing of this particular rule because it's just early. It's premature. It overshoots the mark, and it really does present risks to the use of technology in, in you know, for broker dealers and, and investment advisors. Brett, I want to ask a little bit more detail, and and Kurt, thank you for flagging me with this question in the outline about. How you know the PDA rule may be captured under regulation best interest, Brett? I'm sure you that, haven't listened. That's a to, very thoughtful question. Chris. I know. I can't. You know, I, Brett. I'm sure you haven't listened to all 109 previous episodes to this, but Kurt went through kind of a high school romance phase with Reg BI back in in 2020, which I think we all look back on fondly now. So you mentioned a little bit about how this might be covered, but let me try to interpret a little bit about where I see there may be some friction here, right? In that a firm that is applying a technological solution that is self-learning, right? We talk about machine learning or AI, and I am no technologist, but my understanding is that as the solution continues to provide up-to-date information, the individual firm or, or registered broker-dealer IA may be further and further away from the decision point that technology is providing in a recommendation or in a, uh, you know, in a pronouncement. So I'm interested in how Reg BI would apply in that scenario, right? Where you've got a technology that is out there creating opportunities for advice that is unrelated or maybe two or three steps unrelated to the individual IA or BD? So first, let me say, while Kurt may have had a love affair with Reg BI, I feel like I personally went through labor with Reg BI. <laughs> delivered, and, delivered the Reg BI baby, process, that's right. Look, the process <laughs> of getting, you know, the process of getting Reg BI done, if you look at how long that took, and by the way, yeah. huge surprise for me coming into the commission because for like the first two years, it occupied an immense amount of my time. And, you know, I sat in a room with Dahlia Blass from investment management and with the chairman staff and with a number of people, and we just hammered out issue after issue. We looked at the DOL rule, which was, you know, ultimately thrown out in court. We, we debated this. We met with a lot of people. It was quite a process of, of sort of getting Reg BI done. And so I'm very familiar with a lot of the intricacies of this rule and what the intent was. And the intent was, again, to ensure that for broker dealers, that they did not put their interests ahead of their clients when making you know, an, 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 a recommendation or providing advice up there. Now, look, to me, it's things like this, right? I could write an algorithm. Let's say that I had an algorithm and I could say, well, part of the logic in my algorithm is I will make more money if I push the highest price products on my clients. So, I mean, they should not be able to code to be pushing out products that are the most expensive clients, products to the clients. And they could that, that could be actually something that they would consider in the application of Reg BI. If I had a position, a long position on my risk desk that I wanted to dump because I thought it was going down and I decided I was going to take unsuspecting investors and see if I could use AI or technology to entice them into purchasing something that I wanted to dump, that would be a problem. So there, there are ways in which I can think of scenarios where things could be coded in a way that they were specifically designed to do something that would benefit the firm over the exact investors. And, you know, all I can say is this. Like, was there any clamoring from investors that, oh, my God, the technology that is coming at me is, in fact, doing things that are bad? I don't remember cases coming out. People like, oh, the technology, it was because the technology uh, made me want to go out and buy this. It just is, there just isn't that history. There isn't that sort of that catalyst. Regulation requires a good catalyst of a problem. And 
I just don't think that problem had yet materialized. And so therefore, and this is, like I said, I think it's an interim step. I'm not saying we shouldn't continue to look at this. There should be a committee or a symposium or discussion to track this. But in the meantime, those rules could have been expanded to say, you have to make sure that in your code, you're not doing the very things that we told you that you shouldn't have investment advisors doing. And I think that could have worked. I think that that could have been reasonable and it would have been a much better place to land than where this one lands. I think that leads into some of the language uh, in reading the rule that, that really caught my eye, the quote, eliminate or neutralize expectations. And, and I think you just spoke to that, Brett, about those focus points of not only not setting up a system that creates those kind of opportunities to you know enrich themselves over their investors, but really to ensure that system never exists, right? Eliminate or neutralize any issues uh, that may happen. So, I mean, that's broadly viewed through the industry as something that's unworkable, right? That eliminate or neutralize. Where do you stand on that effort? Well, can you tell me the difference between eliminate and neutralize? I'm, I'm not sure if I, I completely <laughs> understand it, but I, I can tell you this, that one of the issues in Reg BI that we debated extensively was the language that we put in, which is eliminate or mitigate. And the reason why we came up with mitigate is because, look, there's a lot of things, so I can't capture all the dynamics of this, but let me just say this. Last time I checked, financial services industry, including broker dealers and investment advisors, are for-profit businesses. If you buy something, and even if it's something you want and something you like, and I give you, you want to get tech, you want to buy XYZ and technology when it's out of fair value, when the price is down, when it's an opportune time to buy. And I have a system that says, hey, guess what, Kurt? There's a good buying opportunity potentially in this, or there's a lot of trading activity going down and it's dislocated. But you know, we know that you're interested in buying this name and we think it's an opportune price for you. But guess what? You buy that stock, I get a commission, right? So I have a conflict because I'm telling you to buy something where I have a, con a, 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 you know, a conflict because I'm going to make some money. Now, how do I eliminate that conflict unless I do it for free? I don't know how I eliminate that conflict completely. We, this is not a socialist society that we live in. This is a for-profit society. The idea is to create win situations. Win-wins means maybe you get what you want and maybe I get paid. Do I eliminate that conflict? Not so much. So the idea of eliminating or neutralizing hold, puts a bar on the marketplace where it creates so much regulatory risk that you know, this is what happens in, in brokers, right? If there's a lot of regulatory risk, there's going to be a conservative guy in the compliance department or the legal department that's going to walk in the room and say, guys, I don't think we should do this. There's too much risk because I have no idea how to neutralize this conflict unless you do it for free or unless you, you know, or unless, you know, are losing money, right? So it's just not a, it's not a good standard. We chose our words very carefully in Reg BI, you know, in, in the fiduciary, you know, interpretation that we did associated with Reg BI, quite frankly, it's interesting in the fiduciary standard, you don't also have today, you don't also have that sort of elimination of conflict. You have a disclosure obligation. And the, you know, the commission and our markets for a long time have had disclosure, important to disclose, right? So you look at the customer relationship summary that are put out by broker dealers and it says, I make money by doing this and I have an incentive to make you want to trade. And as long as you know those things, when I talk to you, you are aware of it. And now you can make your decisions reasonably. And I think that's the right way to go if you want to do something that doesn't cripple the use of technology, but that still fosters a healthy ecosystem. And let me just say this, right? The other thing is, 
like a lot of these technologies have really done a good job in the overall process of democratizing access to our markets and bringing more investors into the world, right? So if you think about some of the new apps and some of the services that technology that have brought new investors into our market, technology has enabled some of that. And that's a good thing, more participation, more democratization of access to the markets. These are good things. These are not things that we wanna put standards in place that will curtail that or will push investors out of the market and then you know, potentially harm market liquidity. Yeah, I don't want to keep harping on old episodes, but we had a long conversation with Lucas Moskowitz about that topic about a year and a half ago. So listeners, definitely go back for that one because it's it's an important point about how there is some good for sure that comes from new technology, from innovations in the market, whether that's a, a new app or a new system that can actually help investors. You know, Brett, I'm sort of curious. We've walked through some of the issues from a process or a rulemaking perspective. We've walked through some of the substantive shortcomings of the rule, at least as you see them. And I guess I'm wondering, what do you think will become of the PDA rule? I mean, as I mentioned, the industry has come down pretty hard on it. And we have seen a few rules that have been challenged in court. We've seen a couple rulemaking proposals that have just kind of gone quiet or disappeared in part, I think, because of the reaction from the street or from industry or market participants. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't know if your crystal ball is clearer than mine. What's going to happen, do you think, with the predictive data analytics rule? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, so first I'll just tell you my personal opinion, which is that I do not believe that the PDA rule can or should be approved. I don't think this one is quite frankly, salvageable. And, you know, on a lot of these things, you have to ask the question on, again, logical outgrowth in terms of where it lands relative to where it was proposed. So my personal view is that it, it would really need to be scaled back so much so that it would have to be reproposed in a different form with significant modifications so that people could actually comment and opine on a, a more narrowly tailored, more rational, targeted rule that made sense for for the markets. That being said, I don't think I don't think Gary Gensler proposed rules that he doesn't want to have approved, right? I think he plans to improve rules, and he has he he you know he's you know he's kind of a, a go big or go home chairman here. He's trying to get a lot done, and so when I think about the process inside of the commission, I think about this, right? So you know inevitably you end up running into the general's counsel's office. And they look at all the comments and they want to hear your responses to those comments. And you have to make good responses to those comments and responses that they don't think creates an excessive amount of legal liability. They don't want to end up in court. They're really busy with litigation already. I, I don't think they want many more lawsuits. And they certainly don't want lawsuits they're going to lose, right? Every time the SEC loses a lawsuit, it's kind of a negative. Like it start, these things start to harm in some respects, even the credibility and legitimacy of the institution itself. In various ways, the court is in fact starting to restrict some of what the commission is doing because of what's going to court, how they're responding to them. And those are outcomes that I think aren't necessarily good for the institution. And so I think in the general counsel's office and people who are really looking at this, they have to think long and hard about what are those larger institutional risks here to kind of plow ahead with something that will inevitably end up in court and it doesn't look like a great case. And if you want to really kind of protect the veracity of the institution, it probably, you know, the best case scenario for me is that they kind of pull back, they realize it needs to be reproposed, 
they curtail it. Maybe they do something instead with Reg BI and, you know, and they do the right thing. I have a friend who is a pretty substantial libertarian, and he was actually excited about the fact that these lawsuits are going to keep coming. The courts are going to continue to curtail the authority of the SEC and that the long term effect would be beneficial for people who don't like all of this rulemaking because, you know, it will start to cripple the agency in Mm -hmm. some ways that he liked. And I'm a big supporter of this institution. I will say this. I have immense respect for the staff of the SEC. The people I talk to there, they're hardworking. They care. Their hearts are in the right place. I feel like the rush has been kind of imposed on a lot of these folks and, and that I just worry about what the institutional effect is if they don't sort of slow down, pull back, repropose something that makes more sense, or simply just abandon it until they have some symposia or other forms that really help to shed more light on what is the right thing to do here. Is there anything we didn't hit on that you'd like to put in the mix? The only thing that I would say is I really do think that the SEC is an incredibly important institution and that the rulemaking process is important to the SEC's mission and to fair and efficient markets and capital formation and protecting investors. And I, I don't think that there isn't not you know, that, that intention has not disappeared from the staff of the SEC. I think it exists there. I think it's why they go to work every day. I think it's why they chose the public sector over other jobs that most of these guys could get that would pay them a hell of a lot more money. And so, you know, I I have a great deal of respect for that. And I I think that in this particular situation, the, the process largely due to substantial ambitions and a little bit of a rush to get a lot of things done did go a bit sideways. But I I still have faith and confidence in the institution to kind of right the ship, to pull it back and to try to get to the right place so that we can, you know, protect investors and not really curtail what otherwise could be extremely helpful technologies for our markets. It's excellent. Awesome. Well, Brett, thanks so much for joining us today on the Insecurities Podcast. We're glad to have you. Our listeners can find you on Twitter or X at Observatory13. That's Observatory13. And we look forward to maybe having you come back on a future episode where maybe you could debate Kurt on how great Reg BI really is. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I mean, look, Reg BI, we, we, it's, we're still seeing it kind of come to fruition. It's not that old a rule, right? It's, it's growing up. Thank you very much for having me. This has been great. I'll come back anytime. And I hope you guys uh, have a great, happy holiday. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Brett Redfern of Panorama Financial Markets Advisory. We always love to hear from our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X, formerly Twitter, or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen. Be well, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz. 
as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.